Welcome to Cultural Connections Lab. I'm your host, Dr. Kelly Forbes. We are here to talk with educational professionals around the world to impact and influence the education system as we focus on cultural connections and the education of multilingual, diverse students. We're excited to have you join us today, and we sincerely hope that you enjoy the show. Are you ready to take your school district to new heights? Introducing Educators, the leading software as a service platform for Title III and multilingual support in education. At Educators, we understand the importance of equitable education and empowering multilingual learners to thrive in today's classrooms. Our cutting edge technology provides school districts across the nation with the tools they need to enhance language acquisition, foster inclusivity, and improve academic outcomes. With seamless implementation and comprehensive support, EduSkills ensures a smooth transition for your district, empowering educators to provide targeted instruction and personalized support. So why wait? Unlock the potential of your school district today with EduSkills. Visit our website at EduSkillsLLC.com or call us now at 405-879-9898 to schedule a demo. EduSkills. Transforming education one student at a time. Welcome to another episode of Cultural Connections Lab with your host, myself, Dr. Kelly Forbes. I am so excited to be with you all today, as well as with our awesome co host and from the sponsoring organization of Edge Skills, Dr. Jeffrey Taylor Tribble. I am excited to be with a huge pioneer in the field of bilingual and multilingual education here to introduce our guest, Dr. Joel Gomez. Dr. Joel Gomez is the president and chief executive officer for the Center for Applied Linguistics. He holds an EDD in higher education administration from the Georgia or from the, the sorry, the George Washington University. He received his master's in Latin American studies from the University at Texas of Austin where he <laughs> go University of Texas Austin where he also completed, <laughs> where he also completed doctoral work in applied linguistics and foreign language education studies he received a BA in liberal arts with Spanish and history as a focus from the University of Texas at Austin with a proven management style that empowers and motivates Dr. Gomez brings a wide range of experience and research policy and practice and equity Language and Education to the Center for Applied Linguistics from his work in higher education, the private, for-profit sector, and public education. Dr. Gomez joined Cal from the George Washington University, where he held a joint appointment as a faculty member and chair of the Department of Education Leadership, and where he was also served as Associate Dean for Research from the Graduate School of Education and Human Development. Dr. Gomez's areas of expertise include bilingual and bicultural education, higher education, national online information centers, and federal funding of education, research, and development. He has also worked at the international level as an evaluator and technical assistance provider in countries such as India, Pakistan, Macedonia, Dominican Republic, among others. Before George Washington University, Dr. Gomez served as vice president for computer and clearinghouse operations in a small for-profit business, as well as project director on sponsored projects. As vice president, he assisted in, complete, uh, in competing 
for and supporting a variety of information clearinghouse sponsored projects, including the National Clearinghouse for Bilingual Education, among others. Dr. Gomez began his career in education by teaching at the middle school and elementary grades. In this capacity, he taught first, second, and sixth grades in two school districts in South Texas. Following his elementary school teaching experience, Dr. Gomez taught undergraduate courses in the Department of Romance Languages at Pan American University, where he taught beginning Spanish courses for Spanish speakers along with courses in Peninsular and Latin American Literature and Spanish Applied Linguistics. Dr. Julio Gomez has served as President and Treasurer of the National Association of Bilingual Education and is a founding member of the Mexican and American Solidarity Foundation, a multi-million entity funded by the government of Mexico. Following his time at Pan American University, Dr. Gomez worked at the Texas Education Service Center, where he led various efforts, including serving as Director of Federal Programs in Title I, Migrant Education, and Bilingual Education. And related to these efforts, he also served as Regional Director for a National Spanish Curriculum Development Project, focusing on language arts, social studies, science, math, and the fine arts. Also as a director of a Tri-State Education Technical Assistance Center and director for a national assessment and curriculum project in bilingual education. It is truly an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Joel Gomez. Bienvenido. Sí, señor. Muchas gracias. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I look forward to having a good, robust and fun conversation. I'm really excited. Um, it's been it, it, it's been a little bit surreal, if I'm being completely honest with you, to be able to meet you, um, having my master's degree in bilingual education mm. and TESOL, um, as well as another master's degree in leadership and administration, mm. bringing that um, to the forefront of that master's degree. And then just most recently completing my dissertation, focusing on the role of cultural proficiency and what that plays. Wow. And so, so much of the work that, that you have have been pioneering and leading, um, uh, of course, along with other uh, researchers and educators in the field, but truly from the Center for Applied Linguistics mm -hmm. and, and you yourself and taking that into my work and what I've been doing, it's just incredible to get mm -hmm. to meet um, someone that I just see as a role model in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because you've never known me and yeah. I feel like I've known you <laughs> for so long, but I'm glad that I finally had the honor yeah. and privilege to meet you. Well, truly. Thank you. And it's also a pleasure to, um, to meet you and to get to know more about you and uh, congratulations on your doctorate. Yeah. <laughs> so, you. <laughs> so you're very young, so you probably just finished. Uh, so can you just uh, tell me uh, what was your dissertation time? Yes, yeah, so, I'd like to know what that is because uh, you know it's a good start for a conversation. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so for my uh, uh, for my research, I was really focused on the role that cultural proficiency plays in supporting and providing an equitable education for all students, and what that what that really looks like. And so, a lot of my research, well, the framework that I used was from um, Lindsay and Lindsay looking at the conceptual framework for culturally proficient practices and identifying what barriers there might be, um, also what guiding principles there are, unhealthy and healthy practices, and then those five um, standards and the elements of, um, of what that looks like to institute um, cultural proficiency and culturally proficient practices mm -hmm. in the education sector and even beyond and, mm -hmm. what, and what that looks like and just how mm -hmm. we um, sometimes 
behave mm -hmm. uh, and also in sometimes in ways that we create policy mm -hmm. and also in ways that that impacts our pedagogical practice, mm -hmm. the, um, the, the inclusivity of our students, their languages, their cultures and who they are and their identities. Wow. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, so, so having said that, uh, one of my interests is always uh, starting out with parents. You know, parents, parents. Um, let's just say a parent, a mother, a father, a parent is is a student is a kid's first teacher. Mm -hmm. They they learn from the parent. They learn from typically the mother, uh, uh, the father, the the care the caregiver. So, um, and I think that that is so important in all of the work we do, whether it's um, educating kids who speak only one language or kids that speak uh, several languages or, or bilingual. So in your case, in your study, what, what would you say could be like, you know, a few takeaways for parents based on your findings? So if you were going to talk with parents, what what would you tell them about the result of your dissertation study uh, that that would help them with the education of their children? You know, I, I love that you asked that question. It's it's definitely recognizing the assets that you bring, the fundamental knowledge yeah. that you bring, um, ensuring that. I think the very first recommendation would be to just make sure that you are solid and understanding in who you are and proud of that and that, that you allow yourself to celebrate that. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like oftentimes that we can be put into different silos or we can be othered or we can be yeah. whatever that group is, whenever the reality is, is that we, we all are bringing assets to the table. Yeah. The beginning of this country was not English speaking in, you know, monolithic in, in, in any way. And so there's a whole diversity there that has really transformed and changed in the field of education. So for parents, it would be to, in, to just ensure and in yourself and in your child that you are your child's first teacher. Yeah. You are bringing a wealth of knowledge and understanding and background and culture and tradition. And like I said, identity to that table, which is going to help your student, your child yeah. learn more than just language and more than just content, but also about life. Mm -hmm. My my main direction, I think, would be trying to help leaders in the educational sector to come to an understanding, mm -hmm. to be able to try to not just understand, but really go beyond that and conceptualize this. And mm -hmm. how do we create not just advocacy, but allyship and mm -hmm. interconnected cultural um, uh, awareness, responsiveness, just connectivity overall in a way that benefits all of us. I, we're, we're always better through our diversity than we are not. Yeah. So uh, and Dr. Gomez, if I might interject yeah, and sure. ask uh, you to highlight just based on the limited experience and background I have with you, I know you have a really amazing story about your, your family. And so you're asking about family, if you don't mind touching on impact your parents and specifically telling us about your grandmother and the impact that she had on, on you and your uh, life growing up. Sure. Uh, like, <clears throat> like, like Kelly and I have been discussing, um, children learn um, their first lessons from, from the, the parents and the caregivers and, and uh, the, the entire family and their community. Um, so they, they come to school already like with uh, at least five years worth of, uh, of knowledge accumulation. And um, so the important mm -hmm. thing is uh, to, um, 
have educators in providing formal education uh, opportunities for these kids to have an open mind about what the kids are bringing, just like you were saying, uh, except that they do have um, uh, a lot to uh, that, that already intersects with what happens in school. Yeah. So, so for example, um, you know, Taylor asked me about, uh, you know, my grandmother. Well, sure. Uh, my family typically, uh, well, my family has been in what is now the United States uh, since uh, the late 1600s, around, you know, 1690s, 1700 in, in, in the Southwest, for example, in what is now the, you know, the Southwest, you know, <laughs> uh, depends where you're. What, what your point of view is when you point of reference, Mexico. right? Right, yeah, Mexico, yeah. yes. Right, well, not, Texas. Yeah. And and so um, one of the things that I that uh, occurred while I was growing up is I spent a lot of time with my grandmother because uh, you know I'm from the kind of like the the World War II era, and my father was in the armed forces, and um, I was kind of like um, a World War II baby, and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. So I learned a lot from her. Uh, there was a, the puns of knowledge that you were talking about. And one of the things uh, that um, occurred was that my grandmother would, would, you know, I would beg her to tell me folk tales every night. Now, back then, um, as my children don't understand, uh, my, my grown-up kids don't understand, there was no network TV. There was, <laughs> a matter of fact, no TV. <laughs> And, and where I'm from, there was no uh, network radio either. And as a matter of fact, um, maybe there wasn't even electricity. <laughs> and uh, there was no, uh, you know, running water either. So it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, even though I'm, I'm, I, was, I was born in this century, but I was living kind of like in, 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 in a previous century. And, and so I would beg my grandmother to uh, tell me um, a folktale. You know, in English, we might say a fairy tale, but there's a little bit of a difference between a fairy tale and a folk tale. So every every evening I would say, cuéntame un cuento. No, hijito, estoy muy cansado. No, uh, you know, tell me a story. No, I'm very tired. But anyhow, I would always prevail and she would tell me. So so there were there were a long, a large number. There was a large body of, uh, of folk tales she had access to. The wonderful thing is that that again, there was no, there were only battery powered big boxes that had a power that had an antenna and a roof for radios. And, and, and uh, they made those funny noises you know, <laughs> uh, before you could get a station. So it wasn't like my, my grandmother had learned the folk tales by listening to folk op uh, uh, soap operas. There was no soap operas back then. There was no radio stories either. So um, where did you get those folktales? And uh, well, she learned them from one generation to another generation to another generation. And, and the phenomena of folktales is worldwide. They exist all over. And of course, in English, we have Anderson's folktales, for example. So I learned a lot. Um, and uh, what, what was some of the, what was one of the important things? Well, it wasn't that just they were entertaining. Uh, they, they, um, they, they, it, the folktales uh, encounter allowed me to engage with a mentor, uh, an adult I trusted, mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't just entertaining. Um, it was focusing my attention. Uh, it kept my, it disciplined my ability to, to listen. 
uh, my ability to um, to uh, pay attention to themes, uh, to characters, to character development. There was all kinds of literary imagination. So one of the stories talked about, um, uh, uh, let's say, Llanos de Cristal y Torres de Marfil. Just think about that, Kelly. Llanos, donde vive el príncipe? En el palacio, en los Llanos de Cristal. Y Torres de Marfil. Wow, just think hmm. about that, you know, and you're two, two, three, four, five, and you're listening to your grandmother talk about this place that she's never seen, that she can't explain what it is. Llanos de Cristal, ¿qué es? Abuela, ¿qué, ¿qué son los llanos de cristal? Hijito, pues no sé, pero me imagino que ha de ser como algo de cristal. Yeah. Y torres de marfil, were they very tall? And how, they, how were they made out of marfil, you know? And, and so you learn all this, you imagine, just like, like you're saying, Taylor, you imagine all these things. So I come to school with all this knowledge. Mm. And... Uh, After one reporting period, I'm 30 out of 30. <laughs> <laughs> We were just having that conversation. I, I was ranked 30 academically out of 30 because uh, I went to a, a, a private parochial school that was only taught in English. And um, so there, there was no room made or there was no uh, uh, opportunity for me to express what, what I knew at all. And, um, and, and so that's kind of like one of the experiences that, um, uh, the, the experience that you're talking about, the body of knowledge, uh, the community body of knowledge mm -hmm. that the kids bring to school. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, I went on and majored, as, as you were saying, in, in Spanish and then um, did master's in, in Latin American studies. And then I uh, went on and did doctoral work in, in, in applied linguistics in Spanish and English and, and language education. And so in one of my, uh, one of my, uh, one of my classes, uh, I was taking a, a Spanish class uh, graduate course in all of the works of Cervantes, oh. except Quixote, you know, because, uh, because um, Cervantes wrote a lot of, not, not a lot, but, but he had several novels and novelettes. Don Quixote. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And, and so one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the novels that uh, Cervantes, novelettes that he wrote, was uh, Pedro de Urdemales. Pedro de Urdemales. Um, Pedro full of, of, of uh, trickery. Mischief. Mm -hmm. Mischief, yeah. And, uh, and I said, wow. I know that. That was one of my folk tales that my grandmother uh, recounted when I was growing up. I knew Pedro de Ordimales wow. from, from, from my, my grandmother's lap. And here I am learning about Pedro de Ordimales in and Cervantes in a graduate course <laughs> at the University of Texas, one of the better universities yeah. in the country. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't deny that. Another <laughs> shout out to UT <laughs> Austin, yes. <laughs> so, so you can see, you know, how, how that what kids bring to school can be so important mm -hmm. that um, it's great to have um, a, a formal school system be receptive 
and accepting of what kids and encouraging of, of what kids can contribute uh, when they come to school. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, your, your grandmother was not formally educated, is that correct? Yeah, of course. Uh, my grandmother never had the opportunity to, um, uh, to uh, attend public education at all. So she, but you, I remember you saying she's like one of the smartest people that you oh, have ever known. Oh, uh, absolutely. You know, she was the matriarch. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, uh, she, she was uh, not literate in Spanish. And, you know, she couldn't read in Spanish and she couldn't read in English. And, um, you know, she even didn't do math very well or, or you know, she didn't have the concept of uh, like addition, multiplication, etc. So once once I got a little bit of education, I got uppity. You know, I know more than your grandma, you know. <laughs> yeah. so, so I would say, so grandma... <laughs> ¿Cómo sabes si todas las gallinas están en el gallinero? How do you know if all the chickens are in the chicken coop? Uh -huh. If you can't count them. And, and you say, oh, muchacho grosero. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> she said, ¿crees que sabes mucho? You think you know a lot. Yeah. You know, she says, of course I know the chickens are. How, how can I not know if the chickens are in the chicken coop? She says, you know, the one with the red crest, the one with a broken beak, uh, the one with the, with the white wing, the one with the red leg, of course. She says, so you, she used classification skills. Mm -hmm. and, and that in itself is so important because um, when, when we come to school, um, it, it's kind of like we narrow down the body of knowledge that we're taught. So the only way to do math is to count one, two, three. So I don't know if you ever tried to count anything that's moving, you know, like <laughs> chickens or dogs or cats or people. And, and you, you say, one, two, three, four, five. Oh, no. Did I count that already? One, two, three. No. Oh, did I count that already? One, two, three. I don't know. There's too many things. I can't really count them. I really don't know. This is an estimate. But if you're using classification skills, you, you blink, you take a picture, mm -hmm. and, and you can see what's there and what's not there. A and skill what elementary principles yeah. need. <laughs> well, and, and, and going, going back to your question to, to Kelly, you know, I think we still today have, have many parents who come to us uh, with limited formal education. Yeah. How do you suggest with your experience with your grandmother that schools mm -hmm. engage parents that unfortunately, to your point, sometimes people look down on and think they don't know things when they really do. So how do schools get families with limited formal education involved in yeah. the system. Right. Well, I think, I think that we can explore several avenues. Um, you know, that was, uh, I, I forgot who was interviewing home. And, and so I thought I was interviewing Kelly. <laughs> That's what I was starting to think it's turning into. <laughs> so I was going to ask Kelly as, as a principal, what, 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 uh, you know, you, 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 you had experience in, in dealing with parents and, um, so based on, like, I was going to ask you, based on your, on your dissertation study, what would you recommend to, uh, to principals about um, how to basically open, open that uh, uh, metaphorical door for parents to really be in included and be inclusive within the formal education process? And, and um, so, Taylor, I don't know if there's any silver bullet for that. Um, I can recount... Um, also, that uh, after my experience uh, in, in the parochial school, um, 
I moved on to uh, uh, my neighborhood school, and um, it was uh, mostly uh, mostly a kid from the community, and um, it was very community oriented. The school was very community. In other words, the the school was almost like a community center. So if somebody was celebrating a wedding anniversary, they would go and and um, have their party, their dance, whatever in in, in the school setting. Um, and and uh, there were all these rules that you have to sign, all these papers and all that paperwork that you you got to do now. So so the school was the center uh, for community life. Um, so we needed uh, uniforms for basketball, uh, the parents, the grandparents, uh, the cousins, the uh, madrinos, padrinos, madrinas, los padrinos would all come together and, and have a tamalada. They would, they would make tamales and then they would sell and then they would raise money for the, the, the uniforms. So, so there was a lot of, uh, of, of, uh, activities going on between the community and the school. It wasn't like uh, the school is for formal education processes that are going to be evaluated through standardized tests. And and the community is a place that uh, incubates the kids and sends them to school, you know, and, and, and they're two separate places. So so the idea of, uh, of trying to still make the, the, the school setting a little bit more welcoming to... Um, to uh, make, making making the school a part of the life of, of the community life, and even in saying that, I realize how um, that could be difficult because now, so for example, we have a school district here that that can spend um, you know in, in, from the middle of where the school is can go fifty miles in each direction, and there's other schools that that almost cover the entire state. <laughs> you know, so how do you how do you develop a community spirit? Um, and mm-hmm. and so so those are some of the challenges, but you know there are solutions out there that are kind of interesting that we don't talk very much about. You know, I kind of like the since I grew up in that environment where where my grandmother was uh, very much uh, accepted in school. Teachers and, and uh, uh, school personnel would go out and say, "Ay, doña Paulita, qué gusto de verla. Pásele, cómo está. Tómese un café." You know. Good to see you. Come on, let's have some coffee, and you know, an embrace, and you know, a chit chat, and cómo está la familia, and you know, of course, we don't have sometimes those kind of, of of opportunities in school right now because everything is very scripted and everything is very formal, and there's no time, and there's all kinds of things that need to be done. But I like the idea of exploring how uh, what the benefit is of uh, of community based schools you know mm-hmm. where where uh, uh you know we we accept society is very diverse we accept maybe maybe uh parents don't have the 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 flexibility the freedom uh, the economic means to do what my grandmother could, which was just to spend time in the schools. Maybe uh, the parents need to be working. They need to be work during the day. They need to be working at night. So, so how do we develop? How do we encourage? How do we develop that feeling, that ownership, that partnership? I think it needs to have that partnership. Um, and um, how do we do that? Well, you know, there's. Uh, I'm not an expert in community-based schools. I, I know very little about it. But what I've read is that it sounds like awesome in that um, they're kind of built to accommodate society as it is, not as it should be, not as it, you know, was. Uh, 
And uh, so you develop a school where uh, a community school where maybe parents, uh, kids can come in as early as 630 in the morning. Uh, maybe kids can stay uh, at the community school till um, nine o'clock at night. And, and, and this is not an ideal that I'm talking about. There are schools that are, that are out like that. And, and within your, your school, you, you have uh, combined services. You combine health. Um, you, you combine uh, health activities, uh, recreation activities, uh, academic activities. Um, you, you have a library. Uh, you, you have maybe social workers that can help with, can work with kids. Uh, you have opportunities for kids to uh, participate in extracurricular activities with, with mentors. Um, you go beyond just, uh, you know, you, you try to, uh, provide, uh, you know, job opportunities for the, for the community as paraprofessionals that are part of the community that know the families, know the kids. So that might be something that that might help because right now it's it's still you know we haven't gotten away from from the uh, what I what what we talk about many times which is the assembly line process you know uh, you, Kelly you you go to Kelly for this thing you 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 go to Taylor for something else you go to Hoyle for something else and 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 every time you go to each person you get stamped, 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 and it's 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 all very processed. But there's um, no sense of community. There's no empathy. There there's no ownership. It's just a process and um, and and outcomes at the end of the year. And and we see where that's gotten us. Mm -hmm. We're not we're not doing well. <laughs> I mean, you know, all I have to do is, you know, if we got on a plane every day, and we didn't know whether and 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 the pilot was like our education system, or the airline was run like our education system. And you know, you might not know whether you're going to land or not. You, you know that 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 wouldn't be allowed. And and so the the tragic thing is that when kids go to school, and we don't behave like it's high stakes for them, not for the teacher, not for the school district, not for the state, but it's high stakes for the student that if they don't have a positive learning experience in partnership with the community and the school, that that's it. You mm -hmm. know, the plane wrecked. They're not going to have uh, the opportunities that other kids have. So, so, so anyhow, so those kind of things are interrelated. So the question is, you know, what would you... What would I recommend in terms of how does um, how, how to address the partnership between family and and schools? So that's one. I know I probably can talk a lot about it, it's, but but uh, it's, just one it's thing deep. though. So suppose you don't have a community school. What do you do? I mean, what do you really do? Well, you know, there there's things like um, you know we have community reps that that help create uh, relationships with the community. Uh, maybe we need more of them. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe we 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 need um, maybe we can, we can have a community school, but maybe um, uh, the school districts need to change their bus routes <laughs> and schedule. It's going out to the community, right? Exactly, so it's going the out community into, to come to exactly. You've right. done a lot of that. Some of your schools have yeah. Kelly kind of going out and meeting them where they are. Yeah, yeah, trying for sure. There's so much to unpack there, and yeah. I, I I love this con I love this conversation because I I. It, it's personal to me in the aspect whenever you're talking about your, your your experiences with your grandmother 
for example, or, or your, 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 your mother, your family, um, my grandparents are my best friends in the entire world. Yep. Uh, they're currently 90 years old, oh, both wow. of them. Uh, September 91 for my grandfather and December 91 for my grandmother. Wow. And, uh, I'm just so thankful to, to still be learning from them and having my, my two best friends with me. Yep. Um, so I can definitely relate to that feeling of hearing a folk tale or or the fairy tale even mm -hmm. or just the, the stories of the past and what that what that did for me and what that meant for me i also consider that my grandmother used to always talk to her grandmother and say their prayers in german mm -hmm. and read the bible in uh in, in german and uh and as my grandmother uh, who I, I affect, I was tongue tied when I was younger. And so I said a granny, it was Kiki. And so the grandpa was Papa. So Kiki yeah, and Papa. Right. Um, but Kiki therefore will, would tell me these stories about how she would always be able to talk to her grandmother in German, which whenever you're speaking your, your, your first language, typically there's a different emotional connection to that as well. So then that's a whole different layer mm -hmm. to what this feeling is apart from just the communication mm -hmm. side that is oral written, whatever communication, but also thinking about what does that feel like whenever you have that emotional connection? Mm -hmm. Well, the education system, because it was only in English, therefore took away that part. Yeah. And so then she lost the ability to have those conversations in German with her grandmother. Right. That connects so much to what I feel like is missing in the understanding of what we could be doing in our education system as well, because there is not just the communication side, but that emotional side, right? right. And so understanding and assuming that we do have students that are coming with these funds of knowledge and all of these great experiences. And going back to the, the question that was, that was posed, there is no silver bullet necessarily yeah. like you said, but the number one thing that I could consider is that I have to recognize that I don't know anything. <laughs> like, like Socrates said, all I know is that I know nothing. Mm -hmm. And the more that you start to learn more, the more you start to recognize how much you just don't know, yeah. which is the great, the great journey of continuous learning and just being open. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that it takes the, the, a leader in a school has to be willing to say, hey, all right, I'm going to go ahead and get through accreditation processes mm -hmm. and policies and do what we're supposed to do, right. um, et cetera. But that's not the point of school. Mm -hmm. That's a very managerial side. Right. So I want to come into this as a servant leader. Mm -hmm. I also want to come at this wherever I listen and I learn from you, mm -hmm. where I where I sit back and I do this with you, not for you. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to fix anyone or do anything. Mm -hmm. We have a game to play and we're going to win at that game. We got mm -hmm. standards to teach. Sure, we can do that. Mm -hmm. But school is way more mm -hmm. than just that mm -hmm. because every single person that you're educating is someone's baby, is yeah. someone's child, yeah. is, a, is a little small human that is coming in just like you did 30 out of 30, you said, yeah. but yet you were already on a college level with with uh, abstract okay, works from Don Quixote, right, exactly. uh, you know, right. that. and so considering that, you also have to think about what does that look like, especially whenever you have some schools that can be community schools and you have other schools that are going to be so huge that it's not necessarily like that. Right. So what does and I'm and I'm not and not an expert in this either, but in my research and in reading, mm -hmm. I consider the role of um, collective impact mm -hmm. um, in our education system, but also beyond. So two things to consider with this. One, 
in many school districts, the people that work in the district don't necessarily live in the district mm -hmm. whenever all the students that go sure. to that school live in the district. Right. So there's automatically one disconnect. Mm -hmm. Then on the other side, if we're doing just school, like you had mentioned before, this factory model of it. Right. Um, I myself am an example of an educator and a leader in a school district that has been in for two years and then gone, but never everyone else is still there. Yeah. So who are the leaders in the community who stay and are in that community and how are they involved in such a way in this relationship reciprocated where it doesn't matter if I am necessarily here or not because we still have that collective impact as a whole within our community because we have identified leaders that that don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. This is their life. This is their family. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be, the reality is that you're going to have someone who's going to grow in education, get this position and then that position, and then this district on the other side of the country calls mm -hmm. them and they go. Mm -hmm. And I applaud them in doing so and helping mm -hmm. and spreading their knowledge as well. Yeah. But what does that mean of what you left? Are you taking everything with you? Mm -hmm. Or do you already have it set up where right. you do have that collective impact? Right. But I think that the main thing, and really what I learned a lot from my research, I mean, overall is, is it's really, it's listening, of course, but it has to start with me. Mm -hmm. I have to be open-minded. Mm -hmm. I have to be willing. I have to be able to listen. And I have to have that desire to truly be of service mm -hmm. as opposed to being someone who just appoints a, an assignment, a standard, a faculty meeting, right. or whatever else that that is and looks like. Yeah, um, we, 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 uh, the conversation centers around uh, um, kind of articulation between uh, parents, families, and school. And, 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 and literally and, one of my findings. Right, mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and um, going, expanding that concentric circle beyond that, um, there's there's a there's a total uh, silo siloing of of schools and community. Okay, so I'm not talking about parents now. Uh, what about the mayor? Mm -hmm. What about the um, uh, the city council? Uh, what about the civic organizations? Um, what about the chamber of commerces? Um, what about the businesses? Uh, they all have a stake in education. Nada. <laughs> right. That goes Nada. back to that collective Nada. impact Nothing. part too, right? Right. Mm -hmm. right? Nothing, you know? And and so why, why, why don't we not uh, silo these institutions? Um, uh, they are part of, uh, of the community. They are part of the education process. They, they are stakeholders. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, well, schools the, the, are producing them specifically. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, but, but I have to say kind of cynically, but maybe sometimes we don't want to hear from the community. Yeah, it's keep it away. There are moments. <laughs> there are moments, right. But, but in an ideal world, I think, I think that there needs to be, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, communication means between schools, uh, like superintendent. And, and I grew up in, in a community where, where the savvy superintendents were part of the civic organization. I don't know, I call them civic organizations, uh, you know, the Kiwanis Club, uh, yes. you know, for example, mm -hmm. um, and, and the Rotary Club. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so the successful 
superintendents were very savvy. They, they, they went out and they, they were members of these uh, organizations. Uh, they went out and uh, participated in social events with them. And, and some of them even learned how to play golf and went out and played golf with them, you know. And, and I think that those, those are some of the things that, that we, we, we need to humanize uh, yes. education and, and accept it. It's a community-wide effort. It's not, uh, it's not just the school board and it's not just the superintendent and the principals. Mm-hmm. So how do, we, how do we do that? And, and should we just, you know, things don't happen if you don't allocate time and money to them. Maybe we, just like we have a parent liaison, maybe we need to have a community liaison. And maybe we need to encourage um, uh, members from the, the banking community, the real estate community, the, the grocery stores, uh, the chamber of commerces to come to school once in a while, you know, not, and not just go knock on the door when you need $50 for, right. for a donation for and something. not just for the assembly that right. you're having. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Something so that I think I, that those are some of the things that would probably work. And, you know, we're not talking just about the uh, individual diverse, you know, members of a diverse community. This would work basically for, for, all. for all kids. Yeah. yeah. And we will be right back. Are you ready to take your K through 12 multilingual programs to new heights? Look no further than the experts at Kelly B's consulting. We're not just consultants. We're partners in education with a passion for empowering students and enriching your classrooms. At Kelly B's Consulting, we understand the unique cultural and linguistic needs of your diverse student population. Our team of experienced educators will work alongside you, tailoring strategies that transform your multilingual programs. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Visit www.kellybeesconsultingllc.com today to learn more and schedule your consultation. Kelly B's Consulting, shaping the future of K-12 multilingual education across the nation. Your success is our commitment. Contact us now and let's start building a brighter tomorrow together. And now, back to the show. I do have a, a question for both of you guys. I think maybe s- switches conversation a little bit away from community and family. You, Kelly, talked about your grandmother and great-great-grandmother speaking German in the family. Um, You know, growing up in the United States, going to school, I was not exposed to language to any major extent other than, you know, having to take a a language class in, in high school and then spent so much time traveling, had wonderful opportunity to volunteer in uh, multiple countries, but really struck in India with my uh, time six months in India. Uh, on the side of the road, uh, buying a banana, the guy would su- speak five languages, mm-hmm. you know, and that really started to make me question, why Why right. are we so English only monolingual focused here in the United States? So my question is based on both of your experiences and some of your experience internationally. Uh, Dr. Gomez, what have you learned about language acquisition of multiple languages that can be applied uh, here within the United States? How can we do a better job? How can schools do a better job of recognizing the importance of uh, bilingualism, multilingualism, um, and kind of with the mission of one of the main missions, Center of Applied Linguistics, uh, promoting dual language education? What can schools do uh, 
to help support that that goal, even if they might not have, uh, you know, there are a lot of rural schools that don't necessarily have a great mix of diverse languages that to, to draw upon. What can schools do uh, here in the United States to do a better job of mm-hmm. promoting important goal of being bilingual and multilingual? Mm-hmm. Um, learning is not just an academic um, activity. It's a social political activity also. And, and therefore, uh, schools, uh, school values are a reflection of society's values and political values. And, and of course, political and, and social values kind of interplay, you know, they're, 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 they play with one another, you know. Um, politics are part of your society, you know. And and I think that um, we got to we got to demonstrate value, be all you know for for uh, for what we do in school. If there's a value, if there's if, if there's a stated value, an accepted value, uh, a, a desired value, um, a uh, a rewarded value, then. This is America. <laughs> when, when, <laughs> if, if there's a reward, <laughs> no, if there's a rewarded value, and I'll give you an example of a rewarded value: uh, the seal of biliteracy. Mm-hmm. That's a yes. rewarded value. Parents know that it's very difficult getting into the University of Oklahoma. <laughs> and more difficult University of Texas. Right, yeah. <laughs> so if, if the kids You probably had, looked at this right, acceptance right. rates. So if, if if their child has in their transcripts that they have the seal of biliteracy, they may have a better chance of being admitted into uh, William and Mary here in Virginia, for example, or the University of Virginia. Or or, um, or or Harvard or, or wherever, so so I think that uh, and I, I think that placing a value, uh, a, a reward on uh, a um, a skill, uh, a knowledge, a, a substance of knowledge, can can help us get there, but. If there's not a value that uh, that that's a rewardable value, then it's it's probably very. We will continue to be doing what we're doing right now, and I think that right now uh, maybe twenty percent of kids in in public schools are in world language classes, and and that's that's pretty pathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, in 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 the other side of the ocean, it can be as high as ninety percent, mm-hmm. and. Um, and so there's got to we demonst- we got to dem- we cannot demonstrate a need we got to demonstrate a value and and it's happening with dual language programs um, yes. one of the one of the issues we face with dual language programs is that many times uh, the, the 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 parents of the English speaker in a dual language program are stronger advocates of dual language programs than than the parents of the kid that 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 doesn't have English as a home language. So what I'm saying, Taylor, is that what what do we do? I think we need to work on uh, providing more value. So so for example, um, if if we start if we start um, with if we start 
giving credit to kids that come to school with uh, a language other than English and, and make it easy for them to take a test and, um, and, and be given credit for it. Uh, maybe that's creating a value. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe uh, you having uh, an honor given in, in, in the elementary grades. Uh, maybe, you know, so, so I'm not even going into what we can do to have universities prepare teachers to, to be better <laughs> sure. at teaching world languages, you know. And yeah. uh, I'm not going into uh, uh, state policies. Uh, I'm not going into um, the, uh, the, the actual school district themselves. I think we invest a lot uh, in world language education in this country. Uh, whenever I say, whenever I, I, I talk about how we invest in world language, people many times disagree with me. They say, oh, we don't spend that much on world language. I say, sure we do. You know, first of all, states, states uh, typically have uh, uh, either have one person or one person who's a world language, a state world language person. I know there's some. Uh, some of them are world language, do language, and, and ESL. But but at the state level, there's already funding for a state person. There's funding for 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 teachers. So how many school districts are in this country? I don't know. I, I forget the number. Maybe what ten thousand, or add another zero to it. And uh, if you have yeah, is, yeah. Is, so there are thirteen thousand public school districts. So, so thirteen thousand, and and you you say there's there's. Uh, at least maybe 10 teachers in as per school average could be more depending on the size. So if there's 13,000 times 10, that's 130,000. Well, that's 13,000 school districts. So sure. Yeah. It's times 10 teachers. That's 130,000 teachers. And think how much salary and benefits that you pay and think of all of the books that you have to buy. We're spending maybe close to a billion or more on world language, but we're not getting the results. So so we need to uh, just maybe catch up with um, with 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 where we are contemporarily with uh, with uh, you know having uh, digital digital uh, resources for world language education. Um, look at how we're teaching world languages. Um, we don't need to go to Salamanca. <laughs> Taylor <laughs> to learn Spanish. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we, we, we just need to um, become more familiar with our own neighborhoods mm -hmm. and, and value that community by, yes. by having our kids uh, uh, visit that, that part of, of, of your community and, 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 and have uh, home visits with, with those parents and, and reward those parents. So, so again, uh, if the solution were easy, we wouldn't have a problem <laughs> right now. But, but it really hasn't become better in the past, uh, you know, 10 years, 20 years. Uh, I just read this week that uh, a university in West Virginia is uh, canceling all of their world language programs. They, you know, I'm not sure which university, but, and I won't say which university, but, <laughs> but, but there's a university in West Virginia that says, hey, we we just uh, don't 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 have the funding, and we we want to be more focused with the resources we have, and, and concentrate on in areas that we feel have a higher priority than than world language and linguistics. So um, so there needs to have a lot of a, a lot of conversations, and in the early community, the early discussion on communities. 
to extend beyond the school district, I think that we need to involve the entire community at the national level at determining what priorities are. Yes. Because um, mm -hmm. uh, there are surveys that show that companies are, are going begging for folks that are bilingual to work with them. Absolutely. And, and also paying a higher premium uh, to work for them. I mean, my daughter's an example. She's bilingual Spanish and English. And... Um, you know, she was smart enough to develop those skills at the university level. And uh, as a result, she got a good job with the State Department. And as a result of that, uh, she was able to get um, a, a very fantastic job also with, um, with, with Amazon. And um, so bilingualism pays. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. I always say I've never been to a job interview and they said, you know, we'd love to hire you. But you're bilingual. That's never, that's never ever <laughs> happened. Happen, no. Um, I think that, you know, I, I heard someone say one time, this was years ago, I was at a conference and it's always stuck with me, but uh, there was a gentleman who was from China and he said that in the United States, it's the hardest place to teach English mm -hmm. as an additional language. And and it, I, and you think for a minute, why would that be? But whenever you consider, like you were saying, on the other side of the ocean, People are learning multiple languages, yeah. therefore have a closer relationship and connection to the benefits of being multilingual and even language acquisition and things of that nature mm -hmm. versus the United States. And kind of considering the fact of the impact of that English as a language that is economically benefiting the United States based on relationship with even other countries. So whenever that becomes a very dominant language, yeah. then that kind of takes over unfortunately and so you were talking about putting value on it and i think right. that like on one on, again on one side there's that value that uh i guess society has deemed that english is going to be that mode of communication because it breaks the economy right mm -hmm. without understanding about there are so many other languages that could still be utilized but yeah. it made sense to me why it would be so difficult here and not as difficult in in other countries but then that value, right? And so what about, so the value that we've been talking about has been extrinsic up to this right. point, the syllabi literacy, yeah. you're going to get a scholarship, you right. might get more money in your job, right. et cetera. But what about that intrinsic motivation? Mm -hmm. And so whenever I was learning Spanish, for example, um, I was, I was 15 years old. I had an amazing teacher, Senora Atkins, mm -hmm. and I just fell in love with her. And I thought that she was an awesome teacher. Mm -hmm. And I thought I really liked this content. And then through that, though, what ended up happening is that I wanted to know more people. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know more culture. I wanted to know more things. And that was mm -hmm. my intrinsic motivation, wanting to be able to learn a language to be able, because I knew that I, would, I needed to know that language to be able mm -hmm. to, to know these other cultures and traditions and other people mm -hmm. in a way that I wanted to know. No one was telling me, I didn't, mm -hmm. no one else in my family speaks Spanish. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the only one. So it was something that was very just personal yeah. for, for me mm -hmm. in that process. Yeah, I, I think the intrinsic part is, is, is at the heart of education. Um, the National Academy of Sciences has a study called um, How People Learn. And, and uh, the report focuses on uh, motivation. And, and it focuses on, uh, it talks on, it touches on, I don't say if it focuses on, but it, it focuses on a lot of stuff. But it does talk about motivation. It talks about extrinsic motivation. It talks about intrinsic motivation and uh, how to develop what it looks like and and how 
how important it is in education and and how uh, it also talks about the funds of knowledge accepting what students can contribute uh, providing students uh, choice in, in 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 how they 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 approach uh, a a course in in a, in a project and assignment so intrinsic motivation is uh, is very much a a, a part of uh, uh, that contributes to um, to higher academic achievement mm -hmm. and and, uh, and and it is not happening but um, so uh, so that's that's kind of like uh, that part I, I attended a session once um, that, or read an article or a TED talk you know one of those <laughs> things and and uh, the, the the question centered around, why is the U.S. more competitive? What makes the U.S. more competitive than other countries? China, Japan, uh, Saudi Arabia, England. Uh, what makes the U.S. more competitive? And and so people were saying, uh, you know, it, it's um, it, you know uh, ability because we have more scientists, uh, because we have more engineers. Uh, because uh, you know we we have all 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 the great uh, science infrastructure, and the the answer was no. Right. Uh, what makes the U.S. more competitive? It's it's an ability. It's it it's the ability of the education system to focus on uh, producing creative people. So. Um, you know, we think of other countries that have a national form of education that's a little bit more templated than it is in the United States, um, a methodology, a pedagogy that is that that is more templated. This is the way you do things. Uh, uh, it's more hierarchical. The teacher knows, the students don't. Uh, it's more rote. It's more memorization. It's uh, you need to know this before you you can graduate, and. Uh, and so the sad thing is that this country is moving away from producing, from focusing on, on creativity in the schools and, and moving in the direction of what the other countries are doing. And, 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 that's, uh, and that involves uh, languages also, mm -hmm. you know. Um, um, intrinsically, you know, I learned this from my grandmother. I, 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 I love, uh, I have a love for literature, uh, for the literary arts. Because folk tales are, are, are an oral expression of literary art. Just yes. again, just think uh, uh, the Cervantes experience, Pedro de Urdemales, you know. Uh, so I feel sad. Uh, I feel sad. Sometimes I really feel sad and frustrated that I can't share with my monolingual English speakers the, uh, the joy that's out there to get. From learn from from reading the works of um, of South American uh, poetesses, for example, Juana de Barguro, for example, uh, and there's there, there's several Nobel Prize winners uh, in literature in in in, in South America. Uh, women, you know, Nobel Prize winner. No one knows about them, you know, and 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 their stuff is is enjoyable. It's just like um, I think it was Juana Ibarburo who wrote a poem called uh, The Fig Tree. Yeah. And the fig tree is, oh my gosh, it is just so, oh geez, so great. So so the, the, the storyline for the fig tree is that there's a finca, a farm, mm -hmm. 
and and it's owned by a woman. And the woman strolls down through her uh, orchard, her trees, you know, peach trees, apple trees, and a fig tree. And and she comes to the fig tree and looks at the fig tree, and and she she contemplates and she says to the fig tree, you know, of all of the trees in my orchard, you're the most beautiful and the one that um, that produces the best fruit. And then the breeze comes by and asks the fig tree, so how was your day? She said, oh, it was great. You know, the owner of the farm came by and said that I am the most, most beautiful tree in her orchard, you know? And, and think about what it means to, um, you know, the idea of diversity and equity and all kinds of stuff. And my monolingual English speaking friends can't read that. <laughs> right. you know, it's think, terrible. You know? Well, I think both of your uh, examples are bringing up uh, points that's, I think, important to remember when it comes to people of your inter- intellects versus the masses. So you guys had your own intrinsic motivation and interests that propelled you to learn the things that you've learned, you learning Spanish. Whereas I, I, I think I am more intrinsically, intrinsically motivated by situational necessity. So, you know, I don't know that you know, I failed Spanish in high school. <laughs> uh, I didn't really care that much about it. The only thing I cared about, I remember reading in my Spanish textbook about the Pan American Highway Ooh. going all the way from the United States down to Panama. And I was like, I it, want it. It probably went. Through, I, uh, I'm an adventurer. I was like, I want to travel that highway. And so I hitchhiked later on all the way from Oklahoma to Panama and back. Wow. And that's where I learned my Spanish. And it was the necessity. I needed to communicate. And so I don't know how we do this, but I consider myself more like the masses. We're not going to find a lot of people like you guys that are just intrinsically motivated to learn this stuff. How do we create, and I don't know what the answer is, how do we create that intrinsic necessity? I had to learn. How do we push people out into experiences that are not all that comfortable where they have to learn language because we know it's important. We know it's valuable, but so many of us like myself won't learn it unless they're forced to learn it. How do we create those situations where students have to learn it? Mm -hmm. Well, um, yeah, like I said, if we had the answer to that, we wouldn't have the problem we have now, (laughs) (laughs) but, but again, um, um, let's develop, Let's develop a, a content-based um, second language, second language arts curriculum. Yes, you know it's it's you I, know you just don't go in so that this entire year we're going to learn poet and para and and the present tense. Who in the world spends <laughs> one year speaking in the present tense, for example? Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know that that's an exaggeration. I'm, I'm not making. Uh, I'm not belittling. Uh, you know, world language teachers, but. But, but um, you know, uh, we, we are, the, the, um, our, our, uh, our narrative about society hasn't kept up with the demographics. Exactly. In, in Texas, uh, only about 27% of the kids are white English speakers. Think about that. Yeah, let that sink in. And that's according to the state uh, records, you know. But if we think about it in society, 
the Dallas Cowboys, the University of Texas, John Wayne, <laughs> you know, Cowboys, you know, uh, Austin, Texas, you know. But that narrative hasn't kept up with the mm-hmm. demographics. And, and so um, when we try to teach a, a, a world language, like it's still 1940 or 1950, and, and we're, we're not dealing with the real demographics, then we're, we're out of sync. And, mm-hmm. and so that's what I'm saying. How about if we develop, uh, um, you know, second language arts curriculum that's content-based uh, so that you're not learning about bullfights, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and piñatas, you know. <laughs> That, that you're learning, uh, that you're aligning the content in your world language, in, in science and in math and social studies with, with, your, with your courses in, in, in social science and content so that, so that then one, one reinforces the other, maybe, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I've lived, uh, I, I've, I've had that experience. When I was in Texas that many years ago, uh, many years ago, uh, there was a very enlightened uh, uh, director for bilingual ed that aligned, that had aligned the, the standard at the state level, uh, the, the uh, English language arts standards with the uh, Spanish language arts standards, for example, with the content standards. And, and they were aligned and it was wonderful. It could be done. But, but we, we really don't have those kind of efforts that are going on right now. I think that that needs to be an effort that goes on right now, because going back to the point that you were talking about is that you had situational need for learning a language, yeah. acquiring language. There was some intrinsic motivation on, right. on, 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 on our end, maybe over here. But I also think about just having recently, um, back in June, having participated in the National Convening for English Learners Civil Rights mm. and hearing somebody well, that was yeah. from, and, and I may misspeak, but I'm 99% sure I'm not from Oregon, mm-hmm. saying that in Oregon that they're changing even their um, requirements for their language arts assessment that can be in any language, I guess, within a, a group of languages mm-hmm. that are available to mm-hmm. them. But the point is, is that they can take their language arts assessment in that language because they're assessing the standard and yeah. not the English language, right, right. which I think is a great step in the direction of going back to what you had mentioned that I also experienced and I'm supporting schools and developing and um, in, in, um, uh, implementing dual language programs Mm -hmm. is that sometimes you do have the native english speaking families promoting it more than the native spanish Mm -hmm. mandarin french etc speaking Mm -hmm. families and i think a lot of that comes back to one there there are there are requirements that are already set in english only Mm -hmm. which therefore makes the population that is speaking a language other than english Mm -hmm. worry that i'm not going to have success Mm -hmm. for my child so therefore let's you know, leave our heritage, our culture, and our mm-hmm. language, mm-hmm. so we can have success here. Whenever yeah. that—that's—that is that—that's a fault of the education system that needs that needs to be and can be corrected, yeah. right? Right, right? But then you also have, um, and I was talking just yesterday with Dr. Jose Viana about mm-hmm. this, working in school districts, and it's very rare to ever find um, cabinet level leadership mm-hmm. that is reflective. Um, of language and of culture and of tradition of those being served in the schools. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if there were 
there's just a great opportunity for the education system mm -hmm. to have leadership that looks and sounds like those being served and can have this type of more broader, open-minded way of thinking to be culturally proficient the mm -hmm. best that they can to listen and to learn and to also create avenues where assessments don't have to be in one language or the other right. because we want that whole child to yeah. come. And if we could be more aware of what those barriers are mm -hmm. and break those down, I think it would therefore lead into answering, not, not the silver bullet again, but lead into answering your question of how do we make it more accessible for all students? Well, if we can get rid of the limitations mm -hmm. of English only, imagine the world and the wealth of knowledge that could be learned and acquired through language, culture, mm -hmm. and content that goes way beyond the borders of just this country itself right. and even beyond our neighborhoods. Yep. So... So again, the siloing, mm -hmm. the siloing of languages, for example, English, Spanish, Chinese, um, the further siloing of, of languages, um, American English, uh, British English, standardized, yeah, Spanish, standardized, <laughs> Colombian Spanish, Argentine Spanish, our, we speak the real Spanish, you don't speak the real Spanish. Uh, British English is uh, better than, than American English. Um, uh, and, and we create silos, yeah. but we don't focus on the, on, on, on the, on the Venn diagram, on, on the intersects. Mm -hmm. Kids come to school without any academic formal knowledge. Well, Gomez's um, grandmother <laughs> didn't speak uh, English and didn't, you know, we have to, the kid is five years old and we have to start from scratch. So we focus on all your academic language. We have to start from scratch. Joel Gomez knew how to explain just from dealing with her grandmother. And so does every kid that doesn't speak English that goes to school. Mm -hmm. And every kid that goes to school already know English speakers also. They know how to explain. They know how to describe, they know how to narrate, they know how to evaluate, they know how to persuade. A two-year-old knows how to persuade, you know? No, I don't want that, it's mine, <laughs> you know? Uh, no, I don't want yogurt, I want cereal, you know? <laughs> I mean, kids come to school with language abilities like narration, um, uh, let me tell you uh, what I did with Johnny at, uh, you know, uh, in recess today or what Pedro and I did, you know, that's narration. Let me tell you what I did, you know, um, let me tell you how to do it, you know, uh, let me tell you what I want. Educators say um, we have to start from scratch because they don't know academic language. What in the world is, is description, narration, uh, evaluation, explanation skills, yeah. you know? And why don't we build on them? And why do we think that we have to start that new, uh, again when, when kids already know that in English yeah. and are trying to learn Spanish? They'll, we have a very limited view. Right. What you're talking about reminds me of uh, my oldest daughter had to take WIDA language proficiency exam, her mother's uh, uh, a Farsi speaker. Right. And so she goes to school, K 
kindergarten has to take the <laughs> WIDA test and they ask her to, they tell her the story and ask her to explain what happened. And she said, that story is boring. I'm going to tell you a better story. <laughs> and she told a whole separate story, but right. they gave her a bad score because, because it wasn't she didn't on topic. To right, right. Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. So that, that's those are some of the things that unfortunately are, are, are happens when we're dealing with uh, with with, with uh, you know language instruction the, the, or even uh, instructing kids um, in a dual language program. We we just neglect the fact that what we call academic English really is just part of language communication skills that people learn. Outside of school, also, you know, like I said, in uh, multiple languages, in multiple, multiple languages, language, you know, persuasion, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, kids, no persuasion. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we how do we tap into that body of knowledge mm -hmm. and focus it on a uh, on on in 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 a, in a a topic dealing with with social studies in mm -hmm. demo with democracy, for example, talk about democracy, talk about civil rights, yes. because we we you know. We we the kid can already already has that capacity. Just let them know that they have it and tap into it. In the in the last in the last podcast, um, there was a great conversation that we also had, and and I mentioned this, and I just want to mention it again. The because I feel like it really relates to what we're talking about. The best level of education that I ever received is from my students. Whenever <laughs> I taught um, as a newcomer teacher, yep. sixth to eighth grade, seven countries, eight languages represented, mm -hmm. and. Our producer, Michael Rahal, we always joke because I always feel like I have to bring them up in, in every episode, but they just come up because I remember that very first class and those students and how much they taught me. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like overall, if we would take more time to learn from our students, because we as the adults, sure, we, we, we have our experiences, our backgrounds, and we, you know, our, our knowledge that we're trying to, you know, help and support and um, serve, et cetera. But if you really want to know, uh, listen to your students, mm -hmm. listen, listen to them, learn, learn about them. And I want to do a quick shout out because this was in my dissertation from the Center for Applied Linguistics is an article um, by uh, Beatriz Arias. Yes. Uh-huh. And that just came out and it's titled Turning Toward Asset-Based Pedagogies. Right. And so um, if uh, listeners, if you want to read a great article, yeah. I recommend you looking that up again. Again, it's Turning Toward Asset-Based Pedagogies by Beatriz Arias. Mm -hmm. And it um, it really does speak to what we're talking about right now. Yeah. And there's there's more even beyond that, because that could be a dissertation in yeah. it, it, right. itself. But I just really want to highlight the importance, again, of learning from our students. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can take our own knowledge right. and do a little, you know, flip flop reverse on this and mm -hmm. take our background knowledge and assume that the student is now the teacher imagine how much more we could learn mm -hmm. and how much more that would embrace communities and families and right. cultures and traditions and mm -hmm. identities mm -hmm. yeah totally yep asset-based education and um, and and that's very central to uh, one of the topics uh, that we deal with in in the u.s in educating um, kids that have a language other than english at home and, and the idea of, um, of uh, giving them uh, the ability to speak uh, a second language mm -hmm. and striving towards native language ability. Well, 
you know, the idea of a native language, you know, if Taylor's home language is English, that's your native language because it's inherent in the word native. <laughs> uh, I can never, I can never join you in your growing up experiences. Taylor is an English speaker because, um, you know, my my ability to speak in English uh, is connected to my historical existence. I grew up with certain experiences that relate to English and Spanish. You grew up with uh, historical experiences dealing with mostly monolingual experiences. So when I describe something, when I express something, uh, it's going to tap not into my full linguistic repertoire, as we say now, but it's going to tap into my full life experiences repertoire, right? And, and, and some, some, so native English speakers may say, oh, that's a funny way of expressing that. I never thought of that, you know? And so, therefore, it makes me a non-native English speaker, and that's bad because you're almost a native English speaker, but, you know, there's something a little bit different still, you know? We create too many standards you, for ourselves. No, but you'll never be two native English speakers. Right. I mean, you'll that never be same. two native language speakers. We're both native English speakers and we speak very differently. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> so, 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 you know, this is one of my topics. You know, uh, let's, I'm, I'll just speak about Spanish speakers in this country. So we get it from both sides. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> It's almost a native English speaker. What? Oh, you only spoke up. Uh, you grew up speaking only Spanish. Oh, you're almost. That's very good. You're almost a native speaker of English. Um, I, I go to Mexico City or uh, uh, I go to Buenos Aires or Quito. And your Spanish is really good. <laughs> it's all. <laughs> it's all <laughs> Do you say yours also? Oh, uh, yeah. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I, I studied Spanish at, at the graduate level, at the doctoral level, but but it's ew, not not that quite. You know, you're a little bit different. It, it's in Espanol de los gringos, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, terrible, yeah. So, so the fact is, the shout out for me is that um, we, we value English and we value Spanish. But we hardly ever tell a kid it's so fantastic to be bilingual. It's a superpower. It's a superpower. Yes, exactly. But we hardly ever value the bilingual part. We value the monolingual part. You speak good English. You speak excellent Spanish. That's a really good point. But, yes. but we don't say you're, you're, you're the Venn diagram. You connect one language body of knowledge and culture with another, you're the translator, you're the articulator, you're, you're the part that, the, that, that creates new things, fusion food, uh, fusion literature that creates new things for the future. And, 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 and we don't have a, a, a great equivalent of WIDA for bilingualism. Maybe, you know, the seal of biliteracy gets us there. And we don't have, you know, we, so we, we give a kids a grade for, for, for their, their world language scores uh, for English. But, but it's important to realize and for teachers and educators and parents to realize that, heck, 
being bilingual gives us tremendous advantages because I can bridge both yes. worlds and I can come up with stuff that you can't think of as a monolingual. Absolutely. Yeah. A thousand percent. And it yeah. even forms different ways of, of thinking. Right. And, and so it's so terrible for, for my Spanish-speaking colleagues from other countries to come and say, you know, your 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 Spanish is not the good, and and it's even worse when when there's uh, programs in high school that says uh, we don't want to have Spanish speakers uh, because their Spanish is not you know okay, and it it interferes with kids that are trying to learn good Spanish, formal, yeah. <laughs> formal Spanish. Yeah. So those are those are things also that 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 you know if if kids wake up in the morning wanting to go to school, that can make a kid not want to go to school. Exactly. If anyone's listening and you are bilingual, multilingual, <laughs> you do have a superpower and embrace it and lean into it and share it and accept it and love it. And and, and educators uh, need to accept it and embrace it also. Exactly. And reward it, yeah. Um, because that's, 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 that's the way it is. Dr. Gomez, I feel like I could really sit here all day and chat with you. And I just want to say thank you so much for the time that you have spent with us and for sharing so many wonderful um, topics and really good points of view with all of us today. Is there anything that you would like to leave us with? Well, um, I had a list of about 15 things we could talk about. (laughs) We got to talk about two things. We'll we'll have to be doing part part two and three and four, right? right? Exactly. I would love to invite you for a part two. Maybe next time I will assume the role of a raconteur (laughs) and and tell you one of my folk tales and, 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 and leave you hanging by saying, like I've done in some workshops, so we're getting to the end of this folktale. So if I hadn't kept my Spanish, you wouldn't know what happened to Lisa. So did Lisa find the prince? Did, um, did Lisa, did the prince drink the chocolate that was made by the different uh, suitors that we're going to marry him. Pues ahora que lo sabe, what, happened to, what happened? Did they live happily ever after? If I hadn't continued with my Spanish ability, you would know. And I'm not going to tell you. Said, tell me, <laughs> tell me, tell me. <laughs> that's right. right. Now, that's what makes but, all the good, good TV shows. To right. keep on having one series after another. You keep wanting to come back for right. more. Just right. promise you'll tell us next time about Luisa. Okay? Yeah, I will tell you about Luisa. Yes. Yeah. Well, in all honesty and with, with all due respect, I'm so thankful that I was able to to even learn more from you today and just gather insight from you. And so thank you. Thank yeah, you so well, much you. For, for, for this conversation. Thank you for all of your service uh, in the field of, of education, bilingual and multilingual education. And so I just wish you all the best. And again, thank you for helping educate myself as well as all of the listeners and sharing these connections to culture and talking about how important all of this truly, truly is. Also, a big thank you to co-host Dr. Jeffrey Taylor Trimble. So glad that you were with us today. Um, And also to our producer, Mike Overholt. Listeners, thank you so much. I hope that you have a fantastic rest of your day. And thank you for making some cultural connections with us. We love you and talk to you soon. Adios. 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 Thank you for joining us today. 
Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. Adios. Adios.